rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Everybody, welcome to episode 199 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'll be covering episodes 9 and 10 of season 4 of the Salkine produced Ad- Adventures of Superboy, which ran from 1988 until 1992. This week, it's a little bit of a break from a two-parter, at least for a week, as we get a couple standalones. Hell Breaks Loose, which is a bit of a ghost story, and Into the Mystery, which is... Also kind of a ghost story, to be quite honest. Uh, two uh, similarly themed episodes uh, this week, the first of which, Hell Breaks Loose, is uh, more about a spirit trying to make peace with his death and, uh, you know, the whole putting the uh, spirit to rest. And the second is about, you know, coping with death and letting go of of a loved one, even though you're not ready to do so as that loved one kind of heads into the mystery, which is an kind of on-the-nose title. But before I get to that, I have feedback to address. Feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave's writing in on Man of Screen, episode 188, the episode in which I covered Neil and the Beast and Golem. Then Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Neil and the Beast was a nice return look at Not Maxima from Not Almorak, and after all these years, I just realized that Almorak is an anagram of caramel, with the now-deposed Neela in need of Superboy's help and protection, I have to say that the quote-unquote alien lifeform inhabiting a beastly creature's body was reasonably well done here, so I'll give points for that. But otherwise, for me, this one didn't really stand out. I remember thinking, when Lana pointed out the similarity of the revolution on not Almorak to the American Revolution, I thought it seemed more similar to the bloody French Revolution, since there seemed to be mass killing of nobles in both cases. Probably because, unlike in the American Revolution, the nobles were close at hand, not a couple of months' trip across an ocean. You noted in your coverage of the Golem that it's not explicitly stated why Nazis are bad. Oh, how I long, in light of recent events, for the days when it was axiomatic that Nazis are bad. I suppose the writer of the episode may not have wanted to get too much into Nazism on what was probably mostly a show for kids. I was struck at one point when asked that the mark above the Golem's heart could be just a tattoo, but no one mentioned that in Jewish law, tattoos are forbidden. Granted, not all Jews observed this prohibition, but it might have gotten a mention. Beyond Jewish law, in the context of Nazis and the Holocaust, tattoos would certainly raise bad memories, with the tattooed numbers on concentration camp prisoners. I'm looking forward to your next episode dealing with A Day in the Double Life and Alex Luther Body Swap episode. That should be fun. Live long and prosper, Dave. Well, as always, I thank you, Dave, for writing in. And as far as uh, Dave's comment on the first episode, Neela and the Beast, yeah, it was a nice return look at uh, Neela, or as I started calling her, not Maxima. And after all these years, Dave has uh, just realized that Almorak is an anagram of caramel, which means you can rearrange the letters in Almorak and 
Almorak comes out of that. Maybe somebody was hungry, just messed around with letters. I don't know. I'm not sure how the name of the planet was thought of, but, you know, there it is. Yeah, and the alien in the uh, basic creature's body was about done as well as it can be done on this show with this show's budget. And as far as uh, the similarity between the revolution and uh, not all Marak to the American Revolution, it probably was more similar to the bloody French Revolution. But, you know, Lana was pretty much uh, going with the revolution that she knows. She probably knew more about the American Revolution than she did about the French Revolution. Yeah, it was tough. It would have been tough for... Uh, the Continentals, to get at the uh, nobles uh, across the pond. And uh, yes, I guess I did note that it's not explicitly stated why Nazis are bad. I mean, it should be axiomatic, and it's unfortunate that these days it's not. I mean, but even at that age, I understood what Nazism was. I took, uh, I probably knew something of the Second World War at that point. You know, it's hard to, you know, kind of put myself back in 10, 11 years old and actually remember what I knew then, but... I do remember seeing this episode. Obviously, uh, I knew they hated Jews, but, you know, it just doesn't make the Nazis the bad guys the way you, you think they would. And Superboy is protecting them for a lot for a lot of the time. He even says, even though their beliefs are repulsive, he will protect their right to believe that, which is one of the hallmarks of the First Amendment. Even though your First Amendment rights do end when it injures or hurts somebody, and they are definitely... Uh, hurting people in their pursuit of their First Amendment rights. And uh, as far as the golem's heart can be just a tattoo, I believe Matt asked that question of, I'm not sure what this character's name was. I just always refer to him as Levi's friend. There was a character named Jonah in that episode, at least according to IMDb there was. So maybe that was Jonah. Well, anyway, yeah, that's the just a tattoo comment is kind of when Jonah got annoyed and kind of left. Right in response to that would have... Uh, been the time for Jonah to say, no, no, tattoos are forbidden under Jewish law or whatnot, even though. But I would guess that, you know, I don't know if uh, what percentage of Jews observe that prohibition. I mean, do they all know about it? I mean, I can see why no Jews would ever want to tattoo numbers on themselves, but you know, especially now with as widespread as tattoos are. You know, I've, I have quite a few Jewish friends that I've never actually talked to any of them about tattoos. That's something that comes up. I know a few Jewish friends that have them. But, you know, it could be a tattoo. But although, if you look at the uh, the mark on the chest, it looks more like a, a scar than anything else. So, I'm rambling. I really don't have anything else to add to that part of the conversation. So, at this point, let's take a quick break and play a podcast promo. When I come back, hell breaks loose. Hang around, folks. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Richard Richard Pryor? Yes, it's Superman 3 Movie Minute. On Superman 3 Movie Minute, we'll be examining Richard Lester's 1983 film, Five Minutes at a Time. This time around, we don't just have Superman. We have evil Superman, Lana Lang, a scary robot lady, and yes, Richard Pryor. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start things off with Hell Breaks Loose. Original broadcast date was December 1st, 1991. And actually, I believe uh, these last two episodes were the final episodes released in 1991. I probably should have said that more up top, but there you are. 
This episode was directed by Robert Weimer and written by James Ponty. Guest cast included Beverly Banfield as Louise Larson, James Michael Detmar as Ben Rantel, Phyllis Alexian as Old Lisa, Fred Taviano as Gino, Michael Edwards as The Officer, Paul Vroom as The Henchman, Frank Eugene Matthews Jr. as Ernie, Chris Laban as Young Ernie, Joe Candelora as the band leader. And even though they're not guest casts, I am going to add two names here because they play roles in the flashback sequences. Gerard Christopher plays Johnny Carino. And I mentioned old Lisa before. Stacey Heideck will play young Lisa in the flashbacks. And now our synopsis is brought to you by Wikipedia. Again, I still have lost my uh, TV.com synopsis. Anyway. Strange things begin to happen at the Bureau after a construction project begins. Tools are found twisted and mangled. Computers print countless sheets filled with the name Lisa. And strange noises are heard. While working one night, Lana is nearly blown out the window by a gust of wind coming from inside the building. She calls in a paranormal specialist and a psychic to investigate. You're early. You're not supposed to be here until we close. Well, we're pretty excited about this. And from what you said, I think we have a definite presence here. Well, you'll have to come back. What's going on here? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There couldn't be less going on here. I'm Dennis Jackson, Bureau Chief. Louise Larson, Paranormal Specialists. And this is my partner, Ben Ransell, Psychic. That explains everything. They're just going to take a quick check. They'll work at night and no one will ever know. That's not the point. They have a research grant and they'll work for free. For free? Why didn't you say so? Well... Have at it. But there had better not be a book or a file or a sheet of paper out of place when I get back here in the morning. No problem. What's in this wall? That's what we'd all like to know. They're trying to take it down safely. I'm sensing something in there. We already looked in there. Looks like you missed something. That wasn't there before. Don't feel bad, uh, I have a gift. I wonder who it belonged to. And they discover a gun hidden in the retaining wall that is not part of the building plans. The gun fires at the wall, which Lana is standing in front of all on its own and Superboy appears to stop it. He smashes through the retaining wall to find the skeleton. It was a spirit struggling to stay in this world, unwilling to leave till it got whatever it wanted or needed. It created a, a gap between the two planes, and that's where the energy came from that caused those disturbances we saw. I don't know about all that. I do know we've got a 50-year-old murder here. Dental records match those of a person who's been missing all that time. Who was it? Johnny Carino, he played in a band in the ballroom. A musician. We found his clarinet. Question is, who killed him? The psychic claims the spirit is at rest now, but at night things go insane as the hole in the wall begins to glow and pull things and people toward it. The door slams shut and won't open. Superboy arrives to free everyone trapped inside to try to quiet the raging spirit, but he fails. Lana, however, succeeds by bringing in an elderly woman named Lisa, who knew Johnny 50 years ago. No, it's not safe. Johnny? 
Lisa. I thought you'd left without me. I told you I'd wait. Forever, if you had to. And when you're ready, I'll still be waiting. wanted me to know that, that he waited. I'll wait forever if I have to, I promise. All right, so, you know, a very, kind of a spooky-ish episode. Uh, lots of strange things going on at the Bureau of Extra Normal Matters, which should be specializing in strange things, but, you know, not as such, you know, it's hard to specialize in strangeness when the boss thinks it's a hoax. So anyway, this episode starts with Clark receiving a report about some missing tools that were damaged by someone or something. There is uh, renovations going on in the Bureau, which is kind of quick because if you remember, renovations in the building were kind of a thing back in uh, Jackson and Hyde when the mice were running around. So well, anyway, what's happening to the tools is... Uh, Spooky the construction workers, and they're basically on to their last uh, straw at this point. If this keeps up, you know, some of these guys aren't coming back. So Clark is about to leave, and Lana doesn't want him to leave her there alone. So whatever's going on has her spooked too. So apparently at this point, she and Clark are the only ones left in the office, and they investigate a rattling picture and an open window. So Now, about this bureau window, which seems to open far too easily, you know, they are high enough above the ground that you know perhaps you shouldn't be just be able to walk out this window i mean a few episodes earlier paranoia that one woman margaret was was gonna jump out the window just having walked out so maybe maybe this window should be sealed shut safety tip guys so they think it's the wind which blew the window open and lana nearly gets sucked out the window so it seems like something is going on clark used some super speed to save her and Lana wondered how Clark did that. You know, he chalked up to adrenaline, and really at this point, Lana's not in uh, much of a position to debate him. Now, the first clue as to what's going on here is on this computer monitor. That maybe Lisa knows what's going on because her name was just all over the all over the monitor. Blue screen with, I believe, with the yellow type, just Lisa in capital letters. So, what's up with Lisa? So the next day, Lana reports that the place is haunted, and Jackson is not buying it because. Jackson believes nothing. He, uh, rem remember that line from Neela and the Beast, which Dave discussed in the, in the opening, in his feedback. They're carrying the Beast into the room. Clark says, even if they landed it on his desk, he'd still think it was a hoax. So, Jackson's definitely not buying this. And he dismisses their concerns. They're high up. Wind currents are weird. Again, maybe this window shouldn't be opening at all if they're that high up. And he uh, dismisses the claim that the wind came from inside the building. I guess there could be some kind of wind effect that could create a draft from outside that sucks Lana out. But you would think she'd know if she was being pushed or pulled. And she definitely got the feeling as though she was being pushed. So then the light starts flickering. Oh, nope. That's, just, that's not a ghost. That's just circuit breakers. I don't know of any circuit breakers that just make lights flicker like that. And then you, cause if you flick the switch and turn off the, blade, the breaker, everything goes off. It almost seems here like they're kind of turning it up up and down. 
But anyway, so they're, they're messing with the lights, but that's the construction, guys. Nothing uh, to see here. But then as they're tearing down a wall and behind some wall boards, here is a retaining wall that wasn't in the original building plans. Now, you would assume that when the government bought the building, it would do so at least some renovation work to, to turn what was a ballroom into offices. You'd think someone would know about this. Just saying. So Clark uh, sticks his hand in there and he finds uh, an old clarinet kind of stuck between the uh, the brick retaining wall and, and the sheetrock. So this is where we learn that a, the bureau was a ballroom before the government bought the building. So now we have a flashback to the past. This is one of those TV tricks of the time. You don't really see much of this now where they use the main actors to portray past characters. A lot of times it's in black and white, but here it's, uh, it's in color. Lois and Clark will use this trick at the end of season one in Flyhard, where uh, the terrorists are looking for the vault and uh, Perry's telling the story, and all the Lois and Clark actors play past characters. So we're apparently flashing back to the last night of the Trocodile. And uh, then uh, I guess Lana falls asleep. She's picking up some old, uh, old-time big band music on the radio, kind of like what would be played at the Trocodile 50 years earlier. You figure 1991 now. 50 years before that is 1941. You know, for those of you who are mathematically challenged. So Lana is sensing something not right about the building. Jackson wants her to forget about it because Jackson wants everybody to forget about everything. And Clark asked her to forget about it because uh, he wants her to be safe. He doesn't want her to worry, but come on. This is Lana. We know she's not going to forget about it. And apparently Lana called some ghost hunters. They show up early. I guess Lana wanted to have them there at... Uh, after closing time, everybody had gone home. Jackson, the civil servant, leaves at 5. But they show up a little bit early. Jackson catches them. They showed up early because they were uh, very excited. And Jackson was about to kick them out until Lana tells him they're working on a grant and he won't have to pay them. It's nice to see that Lana thought about that because, honestly, this was probably uh, not, not would not have been approved. A little bit tough to justify ghost hunters on a government spreadsheet. So if not for this grant, Lana probably would have been stuck foot in the bill. So the ghost hunters are getting some kind of reading from the retaining wall. Uh, the woman here, she is, uh, she's the paranormal expert. Her, the end, this guy here is, uh, more of a psychic. And he pulls a gun out of the wall that Clark says wasn't there before. I guess he could have missed it when he x-rayed the wall boards, but and then there was a comment about lead paint before, but I don't know. Things are afoot. I mean, I can imagine if Clark said the gun wasn't there, the gun wasn't there. But now it is. So back to the past, and we have uh, this mob boss come in, and he has uh, the same gun, and he puts it in his desk. Apparently, uh, Johnny, who is the character that Gerard Christopher plays in the past, was supposed to do some kind of a uh, criminal job. And uh, back in the present, the gun is kind of going to get a little bit of a mind of its own here as it floats up in the air and, and shoot at what we think is Lana. And now Superboy's on the case. He blocks the bullets from the firing gun. And Lana points out, I don't know how she knew this, I mean, it's not like she can read the gun's mind, that it wasn't shooting at her, it was shooting at the wall. Maybe it's trying to tell him something. So now Superboy's on the case, and uh, he wants to get to the bottom of this quickly, and he punches right through the wall. And lo and behold, they find the skeleton. Now, I'm no expert, but wouldn't a dead body rotting inside of a building giving off some kind of smell? Isn't it really realistic that this, uh, remember, they're high up. Like, they're not on the first floor. Is it really realistic to believe that this body went undetected on the top floor for so long? Kind of hinky to me. But the uh, 
Psychic says that the uh, spirit is trying to leave the world and move on to wherever spirits go, whether you believe that's heaven, hell, other dimensions. Either way, he's trying to leave, and he's not at peace yet, so he can't leave. So the body is that of Johnny Carino, the character Gerard Christopher is playing in the past. So the question becomes, who killed him? And we're going to find out later that it's his mob boss, uh, Gino. But as far as the present time goes, that's kind of the all we hear about the mystery into who killed Johnny Carino. The rest of the episode is about strictly about putting his spirit to rest. So Lisa, who, like I said, is played by Stacey Heideck during the uh, past sequences, wants uh, Johnny to go straight. And Gino is uh, not too happy about Johnny leaving his employee. And it's quite easy to see Johnny is digging his own grave here. And Gino gives him an ultimatum. Me or her? Well, you know, for anyone who's watched enough uh, mob movies, or mob TV shows for that matter, knows that they don't like not being the one picked. I'm I'm sure, you know, Gino had the whole plan. If, he, if Johnny didn't pick Gino, then well, that was just going to have to be the end for Johnny. So Johnny made his choice, and Gino pulls a gun on him. Gino pulls the trigger, and down goes Johnny. I was about to think right just as the, as the gun went off that Gino killing Johnny is a little too obvious, but you know what? It's only a half-hour show, and it doesn't really have the time to play out that kind of misdirection. So apparently uh, Ernie, the blind newsman who I've uh, been mistakenly calling Eddie for quite some time, he goes back long enough to remember the Troncadale and the name Johnny Carino. Isn't it good that we have a blind newspaper vendor who's in, in this building for 50 years? So apparently Eddie was a paperboy at the time, and he mentions, quote, that poor woman, referring to uh, Lisa, who has no idea what happened to Johnny. They probably just told her he ran off. Hopefully uh, she was able to move on with her life and marry and have a family and have a full life despite the mystery surrounding Johnny's disappearance. We really don't know. She just kind of gets dragged in, uh, sets his spirit off, and that's the end of the episode. And we learned that Ernie was blind uh, for most of his life as he's wearing sunglasses here. So that kind of that's kind of a shorthand indicating a character is blind. So Ernie was supposed to go back and get Lisa when he heard from Johnny, and she kept coming back and waiting for Johnny even after the government bought the building. And, but at this point, Ernie hasn't heard from her in years. At some point, you would imagine she just gave up and moved on with her life. At least that's what one would hope. So the ghost hunters are leaving because they believe that the ghost is gone and that Johnny's spirit has been put to rest by finding his remains. And Lana says she's leaving to straighten up the past. Uh, right off the bat here, we're not sure what that means, but we're going to find out because things are still afoot at the bureau office as the coffee cup moves. The name Lisa, again, is showing up all over printouts and computer screens. And the uh, hole that Superboy made in the wall is now glowing. And sucking stuff into it. You know, everything. Office supplies, people, you name it. It got sucked into uh, this black hole. So the wall is sucking stuff into a bright light. Everyone is fighting to stay out when Superboy shows up. And now we get a scene of Superboy fighting the furniture. Until he covers the hole with the bookshelf. You know, the whole thing with everybody kind of holding on to stuff to keep from getting pulled in. It reminds me of the bedroom scene for Poltergeist. When the kids are being pulled into the ghost world by the beast. But... You know, it doesn't, it, this is not nearly as scary as that. The poltergeist scene was scary. This is just kind of kind of goofy. So when everyone leaves, the bookshelf comes f flying out of the wall in a great ball of fire. Superboy blows out the fire, and now the wall wants Superboy. And it seems to overpower him for a moment, at least, until Lana comes in with an old lady. And 
This is old lady Lisa talking to the spirit of Johnny. I First off, this is the second straight story in which Lana randomly went out and got somebody. She picked up Lena last week at the end of the uh, No Thine Enemy episodes. And now she went back and grabbed old lady Lisa, too. So, okay. Lana's superpower is finding people. So, now old lady Lisa talks to the ghost. And it's Johnny. It's still Gerard Christopher's voice. He did say he'd wait. And now the spirit is truly at rest because he said his goodbye to Lisa. And he's going to see her again at the end of her life. All right. So, this episode didn't really bring anything new to the table. Spirit is disturbed, needs something to help it rest in peace. And I guess there are no real easier ways for Johnny's ghost to do this than the methods it employed. But again, it's just amazing how Lana just has this skill of randomly finding people when she needs to. All right. So it was an okay episode. You know, not great. Not definitely not a classic. So I'm going to take another podcast promo break. And when I come back into the mystery, hang around, folks. Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's for all mankind, a super friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my super friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with the last episode to be aired in 1991, Into the Mystery. Original broadcast date, December 8th, 1991. Directed by John Hunick. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. And I went into some of uh, J.M.'s history last week, so I'm not going to do it here. Guest cast included Francis Peach as Aunt Cassandra. Eden Gross as Young Clark. Peggy O'Neill as Azrael. I believe that's the character that I just constantly refer to as the flutist. Tino Sutras as Cody. Nicholas Caruso as Mike, Andy Isaacs as Andy, Jack Carroll as the hardware store owner, Gavila Cole as the elderly beautician, Deborah Ann Gay as Miss Cooper, Kurt Smildane as the driver, and Bob Sokoler as the anchor. And our synopsis is brought to you by Wikipedia. While trying to save the life of a man whose car just crashed, Superboy encounters an unusual ghostly woman. After the encounter, Clark begins to reminisce about his Aunt Cassandra and everything that she taught him as a kid. Have you really been to India, Aunt Cassandra? Mm-hmm. And Africa? And China and Egypt and all sorts of wonderful places. I want to go to all those places, too. Believe me, Clark, you will. You'll do things that most people only imagine. I can tell. I want to go everywhere. I want to understand all there is in, in the whole world. <laughs> Impossible. Not for me. What's real in life, what's truest, is so huge and beautiful that our minds can't ever understand it. I can do it. Well, then maybe you'll be the one who will. But don't be surprised when things in life are bigger than you. And learn to take joy in the mystery. First o'clock. First o'clock. Come in, clock. But his reminiscing is cut short as he has to save the life of a young boy. And once again, he encounters the ghostly woman. After a third encounter at a fire in a nursing home, Superboy begins to search for Cassandra and locates her in a cabin outside the city. Come in. 
I knew you'd come. I prayed for it. You've grown into quite a man. How are you? How do I look? Cancer? The doctors gave me this therapy and that therapy tried to prove to me how wonderful medical science is. Needless to say, I'm not convinced. You'll beat this. I'm tired, Clark. I don't want to fight anymore. I can't. You're not going to die. I can help you. You've already helped me. Just by being here. But there are things I can do. I'm sure, but... Music. It's so beautiful. You can hear it too? I've been hearing it for weeks now. Well, you're not going to hear it anymore. I'll be right back. Why go after her? If it's me you want, then come and get me. I'm never after anybody. I simply take what's mine. She's not yours and she never will be. Whatever you are, I beat you before and I'll do it again. You never beat me. The man at the bridge, the boy, the old man. It wasn't their time. Why are you doing this? What pleasure can this give you? No pleasure. When a soul's time has come, I simply do what has to be done. After all, that's death's job. Death? While when Cassandra appears on the front steps of the cabin, in perfect health. Clark? That is you, isn't it, Clark? How can it be? Remember what I said to you all those years ago? The universe is bigger than you can ever dream. Bigger even than Superboy. And it can't be understood. So you just trust it and let it take care of you. We can't trust her. She's evil like Cassandra. She fought me every step of the don't you understand? She answered the cry of my heart. She played the game, Clark. The way that you're... The way that Superboy's supposed to be playing the game. Why do you think you were the only one who could hear her? She was leading you to me. So I could say goodbye. No. Yes, Clark. Aren't you afraid? A little. Maybe a lot. But what fun would the game be if I wasn't? 
into the mystery. So, like I said, another ghost story. This one about letting go of someone you love, like I said before. So we start with some pink smoke and instead of hands holding onto something and a tired dude driving at night. Not a good combination. That tired dude driving the car is probably about as tired as I am recording this podcast. But he looks pretty bored and here is our flutist in the middle of the road playing him to sleep. And the car crashes and falls down the hill. This is Peggy O'Neill, the flutist, as Azrael. So maybe I'll refer to that and not the flutist. So Superboy gets about as uh, Azrael plays her flute. And, uh, you know, I'm starting, I'm trying to get a make for what she is at this point, getting some kind of idea. And, you know, she looks very ghostly. Is she actually there or what? Did her flute have an effect on the driver? You know, um, the early indications are that it does. So we're kind of wondering, uh, kind of what's up with her, what her, what her game is. Superboy is trying to save a man as a, save the man as a vision of him appears. Next to Azrael, it's kind of blinking in and out until the man starts to breathe again. So Azrael just says, I'll be seeing you. And she disappears. The cops show up. So all of this makes Clark think of an old aunt. I'm trying to wonder, figure out why this all makes Clark think about an old aunt. Perhaps the music is putting some kind, is putting that thought in his head, maybe. I don't know. And he wants to understand everything there is. And as a boy, Clark wants to understand everything there is to understand. That's kind of a, that's kind of a kid type of thing. Uh, his aunt says, well, it's not possible to understand everything. And uh, she says that what's truest is beyond understanding. And she's kind of teaching him to take joy in mysteries. So apparently uh, young Clark wore glasses as well. I don't know if there's any reason why young Clark wore glasses, but he did. And uh, Clark was thinking about his aunt Cassandra. Apparently Lana knew her as Cassie the Kook. She was Martha's sister. And Lana says, you know, when he, like Clark kind of asked her what was wrong with aunt Cassandra, you know, Lana says something to the effect of, first of all, her name's Cassie. I don't know what's wrong with Cassie. I know several people named Cassie. That doesn't make them crazy. And it just seems through what we see of Clark's flashbacks that he and Aunt Cassandra are kind of kindred spirits. She recognizes that there is something different about Clark. He has qualities that the other people in the family don't necessarily have. Maybe she, she sensed that in him early on. You know, she's more of the, you know, I don't really want to call her a rebel, you know, because 
But she like, you know, I guess everyone else in Martha's family, they were kind of homebodies, uh, you know, staying at the farm, doing what's right. While Cassandra wanted to, had a more adventurous spirit and wanted to get out in the world and see it. You know, sometimes uh, in some of those more conservative families, that kind of makes the person the, uh, you know, a little bit of a black sheep. They don't really understand her sensibilities the way they understand their own. So after Lana goes off about Aunt Cassie, Clark is offended. And uh, she allegedly moved to Paris, and no one knows for sure. You know, Clark doesn't know why he's thinking about her now, but it must have something to do with uh, Azrael and the fact that only he can hear the flute playing. But he hears the flute again and suspects that these children are in danger, or one of them is trying to uh, zip line on a clothesline, and it's clearly not going to hold his strength. And honestly, they're really dragging out this kid falling from the clothesline until Superboy shows up. And uh, again, Azrael repeats what she told Superboy and fades away. And that leads us to another flashback with Aunt Cassandra, who is teaching Clark to trust the universe, and when he does, he'll be able to fly. And I think Clark got nervous when she said that, because Cassandra isn't supposed to know that. I'm guessing Clark is flying already at this point, because, and I'd imagine Clark here is uh, eight years old or so, pre-crisis Clark Kent, he pretty much had all of his superpowers right off the bat, and this is based more on the Silver Bronze Age. So Clark tried to call his mother to find Cassandra, and while we don't hear... Salome Jenda's voice at all, it doesn't sound as though she's being very cooperative here. So now there's a fire on TV, and uh, there's the flute and uh, Azrael in the window. You know, Clark really had to zoom in on it to see her, but telescopic vision is a good thing sometimes. And uh, he changes Superboy, and he finds a crippled man who can't get out of the flames, and Superboy shows up there at the last minute and rescues him away from Azrael. At least we're meant to think that this is uh, her coming to collect these told at the time of death, but it turns out that she's not. So Superboy asks Azrael if she caused this, and she says he'll pay the price for cheating her. Apparently he is, a, at least what we're meant to believe here, is that he is cheating her by saving lives. And in this episode alone, this will be the third time. First the guy on the bridge, then the, uh, the kid on the ter- telephone wire, and the uh, old man in the fire. So this brings us to another flashback where Clark will ask uh, Cassandra why she was so brave because she travels the world by herself. She basically says that fear is a paper wall, something easy to break through. And I'm getting a good look at this kid's face here uh, that plays the young Clark. Eden Gross is his name. Honestly, I thought he looked more like Harry Potter than young Clark. So, to Cassie, life is a game. Take joy in life even when life scares you. So, she's teaching him joy and not necessarily a bad thing. Not seeing anything here, why, that would make her regarded as a quote-unquote kook. So Clark now gets a call from Cousin B, and you must have now have a possible address on Cassandra, because the phone calls end, Lana wants Clark to help her with something Bureau-related, but all he does is ask Lana to cover for him, and uh, she comments that she already does. It appears as though Lana gets caught holding the bag quite a bit when Clark goes out of Superboy, and this time it is no different. Seems as though she's used to it, but at the same time getting tired of it which I'm sure anyone would be. You know, you cover for that co-worker that seems to be blowing things off and you'd get annoyed after a while. So apparently Aunt Cassandra is in a small town somewhere in Florida because of course she is. He asks around and gets agitated when he hears the flute and the store owner has no information. He finds one on the street who says that she's sick and sent him to Mrs. Cooper, the realtor. And, who no- and it turns out Mrs. Cooper knows not only who Cassandra is, but where she's at. She's at the Arkham place. 
which is a little on the nose if people think she's crazy. And it's a, cause it's a clear reference to uh, Arkham Asylum in uh, Batman comics. So Clark is so happy to just have a location that he tells Mrs. Cooper he could kiss her. And she gets all flustered and then has this disappointed look when Clark disappears. Maybe Clark should have said something different there, don't you think? Now, so now Superboy is flying out to this old cabin, and it looks deserted, and so he changes back to Clark before knocking at the door. So, he found Aunt Cassandra, and she knew that he'd come. She's dying from cancer, and she got some kind of experimental treatment that didn't work. I mean, you can have all the treatments you want. Eventually, cancer will close in on make the kill. It looks like uh, Aunt Cassandra knows she's at her end, and uh, she's ready to give up. But Clark doesn't want to give up on her. He's not ready to let her go. And, you know, she hears the music, too. Azrael comes up outside the house uh, playing her flute. Clark hears it, and Aunt Cassandra hears it. And Cassandra says that she's been hearing it for weeks. So it seems as though she knows that she's dying, and she's made her peace with it. She is definitely not going to haunt somebody in a wall for 50 years. So Clark is ready to put a stop to the music. A quick change of Superboy puts him face-to-face with Azrael, and she takes... She wants to take what's hers, and she said it wasn't the time for the three people that he saved. If that's the case, what has he been cheating her out of? And Superboy is uh, thinking uh, she's a villain, but she is the embodiment of death, basically an attractive Grim Reaper. So she's not evil. She's more of a natural force. You know, unfortunately, we are all going to die at some point. Just a matter of when, where, and whether or not it's gloriously in battle or unsuccessfully arguing with somebody on the internet. But Superboy is still fighting her as if she's some kind of villain, and none of his physical powers work on her. No super breath, no heat vision, and he thinks she's taking pleasure in this. You can understand why, because she's got this smug look on her face for most of the time. But Aunt Cassandra comes out, recognizes Superboy as Clark, and he's stunned that she's up and about, but it takes a minute to realize that this is not Aunt Cassandra's physical form. This is her spirit talking. So now Superboy is learning the truth. She played the quote-unquote game. She lived her life. He was the only one who could hear the flute because Azrael was leading him to Cassandra so so she could say goodbye to him. That I guess that was Cassandra's final wish. A little bit about Azrael that I could find uh, on Wikipedia that apparently is uh, Azrael holds a rather benevolent role as the angel of death. But apparently here she's uh, fulfilling... Aunt Cassandra's final wish. And she admits to... Now, I wonder if uh, Aunt Cassandra knew he was Superboy the whole time. Maybe she had a clue that there was something different about Clark. Who knows? Now, she admits to being afraid of death, and she's going into uh, the great mystery, which is death. It's kind of the final... You know, into into the mystery, as the title says. Death is the final mystery. No one truly knows what, if anything, awaits us at the end. So, like I said, that wasn't the physical embodiment of Aunt Cassandra, but her spirit. But death is still smug as she flutes away with Aunt Cassandra. And then back in the cabin, Aunt Cassandra has died, and Clark has to let her go. Apparently she taught him a lot when he was young, and her lessons were vital to his development. But, you know, it's hard to get all choked up about an aunt we've never seen before or heard of before. There's just not enough time to get us invested to this character to make us feel something for her. But it is so like Clark to see good things in someone that everybody else shuns. So, another okay episode not sure what the message is here i mean is this our way of superboy learning that he can't beat death maybe but there is something that resonates about clark and his being different that he would identify with the family's black sheep so that's about all i got for this week next time i uh, will begin 1992 and bizarro will return 
for what I believe is his final appearance in the show, at least as a main uh, going concern. Just about everybody shows up in the obituary for a superhero episode, so he might show up there too. But this is, uh, like I said, this is Bizarro's last main story, To Be Human, parts one and two. Now, want to leave feedback, so always welcome, manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show shook them up. You also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Until next time, folks, we're all on the same team. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.